Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member. It's Thursday, October 14th. You're with a virtual City Club forum. It's day two of our follow-ups with the mayoral candidates. And today we have Council President Kevin J. Kelly. Election Day, as you probably know, is Tuesday, November 2nd. That's less than three weeks away. And throughout this last year and even beyond, we have been having one-on-one -on -one conversations with all the candidates before the primary. And in September's primary, voters narrowed it down to two candidates, Council President Kelly, who's with us today, and Justin Bibb, with whom we spoke yesterday. On Monday, the two candidates shared a stage together, the Cleveland mayoral debate, which we hosted in partnership with IdeaStream Public Media. And if you missed that debate, you can watch it online at cityclub.org. The last time we spoke with Mr. Kelly was actually back in April of 2020, and that's what kicked off this whole series of one-on-ones with mayoral candidates. At the time, we were just over a month into the COVID-19 pandemic, and uh, it goes without saying that a lot has changed since the last time we sat down with the council president. We hope today we'll get a chance to move beyond the talking points and give all of you a chance to really get to know him better. First, let me tell you a little bit about him. He was born in Cleveland, got his JD from Cleveland State University Marshall College of Law. He was first elected to Cleveland City Council in 2005, representing Ward 13, which includes Old Brooklyn and part of the Stockyards neighborhood. In 2014, he was elected president of Cleveland City Council, and he's also chair of the Finance Committee and the Rules Committee. He uh, has worked at Porter Wright, a local law firm, and um, he wants to be the next mayor of Cleveland. If you have questions for Kevin Kelly, text us 330-541-5794. That number again is 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet it at the City Club and we will work it into the program. We've been receiving questions for the last week or so about this and some of them we'll use uh, in this first part of the program as well. A special welcome to for members of the Western Reserve chapter of the Lynx Incorporated who are a community partner for our forums today and yesterday. Can now, uh, it brings me great pleasure to welcome Council President Kevin J. Kelly back to the City Club. Welcome. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here. It is wonderful to see you, sir. Um, I got to ask you, how is it going? Um, this is a brutal pace that you guys keep, I, and I, um, I frankly can't imagine it. And on top of all of it, campaigning isn't your full time, your first job. You've got Correct. this other job, too. Correct. No, my, my, more, my most important job is being a, a husband and a father. And I've got five daughters, so there are no dull moments at home. Um, I'm the president of Cleveland City Council, and we you know, have to keep that schedule going as well. And that is uh, no small task. And I'm running for mayor of the city of Cleveland. But to run for mayor, you've got to be able to multitask, and you've got to be able to get things done. Yes, absolutely. Kevin, um, the during the campaign and in the debate, I was reminded of this. Um, you talked a little bit about how you started out your career as a social worker, and uh, we don't often get a chance to hear you talk about that. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the work you did then. How long ago was that? Sure. Um, I'll start at the beginning. Well, how long ago was it? It was through up and just about up until the time I entered council. Um, uh -huh. But let me let me start at the beginning, if that's OK. Sure. I graduated from college uh, from Marquette University and I, I did a one year, I signed up to be a part of a one year volunteer program. Is that the Jesuit volunteer Corps? Jesuit volunteer Corps. And I was, I was uh, working at the Westside Catholic Center doing mm -hmm. real basic 
um, service things, serving meals to homeless individuals, um, assisting with the men's um, clothing program, mm -hmm. and supporting the women's shelter that was above. <clears throat> but I couldn't, obviously, I didn't have any interaction, but just with meals and uh, logistics. Um, this was a this was a great year. Um, I learned a lot. I you know really opened my eyes to a lot of things. But at the time, I was still under the thought process that I would do this for a year and then go do something else. Mm -hmm. um, but when you work in the community, when you're working in a place like like Westside Catholic Center, mm -hmm. of course you develop networks and you meet other people. Mm -hmm. And there was a local organization called um, Neighbor Counseling Service, which is a just a tremendous, it was just a nice community um, mental health center, which is mm -hmm. emer eventually merged with um, uh, recovery resources. And right about the time I was transitioning out of mm -hmm. uh, Westside Catholic Center, they had a need for a mental health case manager. Mm. And I was, you know, wasn't sure which way I would go, but I really developed good relationships with the, the, the folks that were working there, especially um, some folks might know, uh, just an absolute dear friend and mentor, um, Helen Jones, who was my, like really kind of my mentor through my social work career, who's no longer with us. But, um, you know, it said, you know, give this, well, you know, we, we we have a need here. If you could just give this a, you know, a few years, that'd be great. So I did, and I enjoyed it, and I thought it was fulfilling. I thought I helped some people out. I hope so, anyhow. Mm -hmm. And what I, the way I looked at this is I went from uh, providing basic services of serving meals and clothing to, to a, a little bit of a higher level advocacy, working with housing issues, working with healthcare issues, um, making sure that everybody had income and could could survive, um, you know, in a in the community. And this again, this was, I, I did this for uh, some some time over two years. But when you do this kind of work, um, it's exhausting. When you're doing like that kind of intense case management, it's mentally exhausting to be dealing with people that are facing these tremendous challenges every day. So yeah. I just had a conversation with uh, uh, with my very awesome supportive um, employers and just said, listen, I'm reaching a point here where um, I might not be as effective if I experience kind of some burnout. And we just kind of talked about the paths. And basically the advice I got, which was great advice, was I need to either kind of move up or move out. So mm -hmm. I should either stay in the field, get my degree, get a master's degree, or I should think about doing something else. And through these conversations, they agreed to help me with my master's degree. I got my master's degree from Case Western Reserve University, um, you know, with with their support, and um, that was a so that I could move into like more administrative things. Well, that happened, and uh, when it happened, it happened quick, and um, it was really a tremendous um, professional learning experience and growth experience. There's an organization called Community Assessment Treatment Services, formerly known as Community Assessment Foundation. And the founders of that, um, who I also knew from networking, my neighborhood counseling service network, they had uh, had a grant to start a program for mm -hmm. offenders leaving the criminal justice system to get mm -hmm. back in the community. So um, they asked me if I would you know, be interested in being the first director of this program. Wow. And you know, I was 26, yeah, I was 26 years old and I just had my master's degree and I said, sure. Um, well, let me tell you, this is a, if you remember the old St. Alexis Hospital, I basically showed up, there was an empty nurse's dorm um, mm -hmm. at St. Alexis Hospital, and 
there was no there were no beds there was no paint on the walls there was no light bulbs there was no program there was no staff um, but yet we had people lined up to come and you know and stay there so i had to quickly um work to get the building in order um mm-hmm. you know where do you get beds so i don't know how who's going to paint these i ended up painting a lot of the walls and putting some of the blinds up myself but how do you you know just that whole process and then the process of designing a program uh you know how do you help people move from the criminal justice system who have had histories of drug and alcohol um, use and abuse and help them move in the community luckily i did have great support with that with some of the 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 folks that the founders of community assessment were you know gave me some consulting and help me develop a program while well, we didn't have any staff mm-hmm. um, and a certain licensure that was required for this. So um, we had to hire staff and go through the interview process and train them and get, get ready for this program to happen. So this was kind of a, um, a huge growth opportunity for me in terms of like really looking at what it takes to take something from an empty dorm to a program where you're going to help human you know, people try to get back on their feet from, you know, mistakes, um, entanglement with drugs and alcohol back to, you know, back into the community. So that was a, just a really a whirlwind, but a very fulfilling growth opportunity for me. And I think we just helped a tremendous amount of people get back in the community, get back to jobs, get back to, you know, what it means to live. Um, mm-hmm. So that was great. So as we were, you know, we went from the nurse's dorm to the old uh, uh, dorm at Holy Name School. And then we did a capital campaign to build a new uh, facility, a ground up facility across the street. And um, somewhere along the, before- And you we were got, doing this all when you were in your twenties? Yeah, yes. Okay. And as we reached, as, uh, you know, as I was there for a number of years, I then went back to recovery resources, neighborhood counseling service recovery resources. Uh-huh. Because they had an opening for, they needed somebody to manage their contracts with the Court of Common Pleas and Clear Municipal Court to uh-huh. assist mentally ill defendants that were kind of entangled in the criminal justice system to get them back in the community. So we would work with the judge and with the court psychiatric clinic and the mm-hmm. folks at probation were a tremendous partner in this mm-hmm. to basically monitor how do we help somebody get a doctor's appointment, set them up with their AA and NA meetings, make sure they had income, make sure they had housing, make sure they had healthcare coverage so they could live in the community and not be entangled in this, yeah. this criminal justice system. Um, that was uh, just a really just work with some tremendous people. I think we did some great work. We really kind of helped folks out mm-hmm. and it was just a, incredibly great journey for for me and i just met great people i think we helped a ton of people out you know it it strikes me and you hear this conversation a lot about the the change that can happen between you know when you're um when you're doing delivering the services and the change that can happen if you change the policies and i wonder if that is kind of if that informed the direction that your career took Thank you. So that was almost, uh, if you listen to some of the other things I've said, yes. And let me just kind of tell you the, the where, where the light bulb kind of went on. Yeah. All the work that I was doing, it became obvious to me at a certain point throughout this, throughout this journey that the real decisions in terms of, is my program going to be funded for additional years? Is the funding going to be increased so we can help more people? 
those mm-hmm. decisions were being made either at the board level or at the elected level. And mm-hmm. by that, I mean the, um, the mental health board, the drug, drug and alcohol addiction services boards, which are now merged, um, but they were separate at the time. Mm-hmm. The decisions were being there. They were being made at the state level. They were being made at the county level, at the city level. And that's when I realized that if it's a higher level and a better level of advocacy mm-hmm. um, for the programs, for the causes I was working on to be in one of those positions, as opposed to, you know, I, we did, again, we did great work. I work with great people. I feel very good about the, the work that was done, but mm-hmm. to get to more people, to really push an agenda of helping people of, of, of justice, of equity, that really takes place at the elected or the, the policy level, the board level. Yeah. So that's kind of what infor- that's kind of what got me interested in politics. Kevin, to bring this all forward to the present uh, the the present and and to where we are in the race. Yep. Um given the your background, the amount of time you spent working in human services and directly with people who who were people in need. Um it must sting or it must have stung particularly hard to be charged with being anti-democratic in Uh the debate as you were yeah so that whole issue really gets to just just some key differences there's a lot of buzzwords and talking points and we kind of lose sight of facts so let's just kind of look at the facts they came up with that when they couldn't come up with any any legitimate um charge to you know to to hang on me so if I was anti-democratic, though, it's it's unusual that I would seek election um, sure. you know, four times and, you know, be elected very comfortably uh, four times. And despite the fact some of this came with some of these same people putting candidates against me, spending money against me, just like they're doing mm-hmm. now. Um, but again, this this whole thing, I have. Well, I guess that I mean, I guess the charges are that that the charges that that. I've seen the, the way people talk about it have to do with stances that you've taken, sure. public stances you've taken against $15 an hour minimum wage, sure. um, seeming to, uh, regarding public comment, regarding the Q deal, those kinds of things. And I mean, do you want to explain some of those, some of those stances that you took? Yes. But I want to, I want to just finish the point I was making, Okay, which is that um, as a council person, you are the front door of government to people. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if you're talking about democracy and what I, you know, I don't know, I don't know if my opponent knows what he meant when he said that, but what we're talking about is being the front line. You're the person that receives the complaints when anything doesn't go right. Like you, you are, are what democracy looks like. Exactly. One, one of the things that democracy looks like. It's like yes, a, I admit, the council, I the council person whose number, yes. whose cell phone never stops ringing. That's part of yeah. what democracy but looks that's like. That's what we do. We listen to people. You know, mm. I started this campaign with, with a listening tour. Um, you know, I can't even think of the number of thousands of phone calls that we've, we've received and dealt with over the years because this is government at its most local basic levels, being a member of Cleveland City Council, being elected um, mm-hmm. from uh, from a grassroots group of you know 24,000 people. And Cleveland City Council races are one of the few races that really aren't money seats. You know, you can, a good organized grassroots campaign can win any council seat. You know, if you have the right issue. So, you know, mm-hmm. democracy, is, democracy is something that I've been working on long before as a council person. I'm the person that stood at polls. I've knocked on so, doors. So explain some of the stances then. I mean, take public sure. comment, for instance. And, sure. and we, we kind of got involved providing a, a demonstration mm-hmm. of what online public comment might look like. But 
Why did that take so long? Sure. It didn't take long if you look at the facts. Okay. okay. So um, this is an issue that has been brought up before and it, you know, didn't really have any, you know, sometimes it had legs, sometimes it didn't. But I don't remember the last council president that, that instituted this. There was a, a request in January, um, you know, to, to, to look at this issue. And we were right in the middle. It was, and I, I got that letter the same day. We got the mayor's budget um, estimate. And, you know, coming out of COVID, this, these were serious times. As soon as the budget was done, I started talking to my colleagues. We put together a process. Public comment was done right. It's not that we, you know, rushed it through. It's, it's a matter of doing, when you do something like this, when, so my perspective is, is different because I know when I did this, I was binding future councils. I was, I was changing the way we fundamentally do business. So to me, yeah. it was important that we do it right. And we did it right. And we changed the rules of council and we put in place a, a good process of public comment, which we've never had before. The, I, I have to say, I was surprised that there, that it hadn't existed before. I mean, right. it had every no other every other city council. It seemed to me that school board, city councils, like mm -hmm. all of them have, like the public comment is always right there on the agenda. And I was I was really surprised. Well, there are there are plenty of cities that have it. There are those that don't. The question is, was it right for the city of Cleveland? And unfortunately, um, despite the fact that we were taking a a proper methodical, um, you know position to get this right. It just became a political issue for those that, um, you know, wanted to, um, you know, come up with some charge against me. My, my favorite was uh, two, one day after we had an operations and rules committee, um, you know, someone from this group put out a press release that we weren't doing anything. It's like, well, I don't know if you're paying attention, but I would just encourage people to look at the timeline, look mm -hmm. at the facts and understand that, I am the first council president that put this in place and I did it properly. I did it methodically and I did it so that it will last for future councils and future council presidents. But if you want to, but again, um, to the, to the extent that, uh, my, you know, my, my opponent is, you know, he's kind of anti-fact or anti-truth. Um, if you take the, the, the Q, for example, um, mm -hmm. that meant that was something where, we were asked to keep doing what we were already doing for an additional period of time to extend the lease. And we would continue to reap the benefits of this, of this operation. But really what it is, it was about jobs. It was about the 2,400 jobs that are at the queue ongoing. It was about the hundreds of jobs that were going to the construction jobs that were going to be done. It was a fact that there was a commitment for those jobs that those jobs we're going to be, they're going to exceed our 20% ask from black contractors to make, and got over 35. And I worked with Norm Edwards and that's one of the reasons the black contractors are supporting me because they know I fight for jobs. I will fight for jobs in this city. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the, what does that meant to the city of Cleveland? Well, just look at the very basics since signing and there's been over a hundred million dollars in admission tax generated 50 million of that went right to our general fund. What does our general fund do? We pay for police. We play, pay for fire, EMS. We fix parks. We fill potholes. The general fund is what we live on. And for me to uh, just play politics with this and, you know, allow this to not happen, what would have happened if we didn't do it? What would happen if we didn't have a tenant in the queue? 
what would happen? And could we still be the rock and roll capital of the world if we didn't have a venue for people? So again, to me, this was about jobs. This was about the jobs of those that work there currently would keep going. It was the stagehand workers. It was the uh, the the going for move as we move forward. It was the Cleveland Building Trades Council that was going to get all those union prevailing wage jobs to build that beautiful improvement. Kevin, let me. I mean, I I think people have heard that that kind of the reasoning why like you took the position you did on the on the sure. deal overall. Sure. Why do you think there's this perception, though, that you were standing in the way of the people's voice? So it is a political perception um, by those that want to have that, that opinion. I would, again, let's just I know people don't don't want to let the facts interfere. No, no, no. I'm, I mean, I'm saying like, the, the great Cleveland congregations at the time. Right. Like that's an important organization. That's an important local civic organization. And they were leading the charge against that. And the perception was was that was and you weren't alone, like was that that you were part of a group of people who were standing against kind of the things that they wanted. It was a very traumatic event for them. But in the end, they in the end they got some, you know, the Greater Cleveland Congregations got the mental health diversions uh you know, diversion center out out of the, the whole deal. And that was one thing that they were really that they were they were looking for. Um but, well, I, I don't know. You, I mean, I guess I guess it's before just, you continue uh, on before, yeah, before sure, you sure. continue down this path. Yeah. Um, I you know I know you're the moderator, but do you know who withdrew the petitions? Well, yeah, I know that the people had to they withdrew the petitions because there right. was public pressure for them to do so. Right, but um, I'm just saying that this notion, this anti-democratic. Um, I'm just I, the question yeah, is, no, I'm just isn't so much anti- whether or not what the facts are. The perception yeah. is like why is there that perception? You know, you would have to ask those that are perpetuating it. But um, what I would say is that um, this was queued up to go to the ballot. It was ready to go, and the petition committee withdrew it. But -hmm. again, do I regret standing up for jobs? No. Do Mm -hmm. I regret the position I took? Absolutely not. Maybe they needed a bad guy. I don't know. And why it became me? I don't know. But you know what? I did what was right for the people of the city of Cleveland. I did what was right for the Black Contractors Association. I did what was right for the Cleveland building trades. And here's another thing that I don't know if uh, if people really understand because they, again, it's more fact-specific, but out of this deal, the Cavs family of companies agreed to put new floors on every basketball floors, on every CMSD high school court, every Cleveland rec center. More importantly though, well, as importantly, that's important stuff, but uh, they agreed for every dollar of debt, they would make sure our general fund got at least that much on this admission tax. So it really guaranteed the city of Cleveland at least $4.1 million a year until 2037, which to me was the right thing to do for the city of Cleveland. Those that want to politic this issue can politic it. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, to me, policy is first, politics is second. Um, I do it right for the city of Cleveland, whether it's in my best political interest or not. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question about, um, about, policy, I guess. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's politics, but um, the the what Ken Johnson was sentenced sure. last uh, within the last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and that largely I mean, this was happening under your watch as council president. I don't know how I don't really know the intricacies of how council works and how expense reports and, mm-hmm. and CDBG dollars are dealt. Well, let me let me just let me just interrupt then if you don't know that, okay. because uh, it's important. I know um, that's what I'm asking. Yeah. So the the council president um, manages the calendar. We manage the committees. Yeah. I look at the legislation that that is coming. I 
you know, do votes. I manage how legislation happens and gets passed and gets through if there's problems, how do we resolve it? The council president doesn't um, review expense reports. I'm not the treasury of the city of Cleveland. Um, I was that practice that um, led to Ken Johnson's arrest and conviction predated me by at least two council presidents. But what I'll tell you is that the minute that I found out about it. Uh, two council presidents is back to Frank Jackson. Is I just made that up. It predates as long as Ken, it's been <laughs> happening for a long time. Okay. Um, but the minute I found out about that, <clears throat> and again, I would welcome anyone to fact check. Um, I put a stop to the practice. Uh -huh. I brought in a, uh, an auditor and not a, not a, you know, there's no fake process. I brought in Skoda Minotti. They reviewed mm -hmm. every pro every process, every practice that we had, and we mm -hmm. changed it. And mm -hmm. we changed it so this won't happen again. Mm -hmm. So will there always be people that step outside the parameters? Probably. But the mm -hmm. question is, what happened when I found out, even though this isn't something that this wasn't a legislative matter, we didn't approve these by a vote of the council. This is something that took place on an administrative level that, that the council president is not involved in. This but sort of again, thing isn't, it, but it doesn't fall under like the, the work of the rules committee. No, no, this okay. is, again, remember, the minute I found out about this, I stopped it. The minute I yeah. found out about it, I brought in an independent auditor. The process is now better. The process now, it would be really hard to violate the process. Did you, did you find out about it through the media? No. Was that when the stories came out? No. Um, Before that? Just before that, um, we we had brought a staff person in um, that was on the administrative side um, that 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 saw how this was going and and, and raised a flag to me and said, um, you know, the person that's picking this check up, we know him, um, you know, from other operations. She basically brought that, to my attention. Did that did that was that brought to your attention because reporters were 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 investigating it? It happened. They reported it. It just be. It happened just before. That just before it was started. publicly reported. So yes. while they were looking into it, yes, probably what. So that so it would have. It would have been. But it was a staff person that basically that we had just brought on that noticed uh -huh. the right. And that sometimes that's what happens in 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 life is a fresh set of eyes. You bring somebody else in and they notice things. Mm -hmm. But that's how it came to me. Um, the judge in the case um, noted the important role that the media played in bringing those that issue to light. And um, the current administration doesn't have a very strong track record with providing information uh, in a timely manner when public information requests are made or, or Freedom of Information Act requests are made. Um, how do you plan to deal with the media in and in what ways would that be different than uh, than the current administration? Well, similar to how I deal with it as president of council, um, everything you just mentioned, um, you're in the business. I would suggest that uh, you don't get those complaints about council. You don't um, have slow response times coming out of council. And I intend to, you know, open, uh, excuse me, adopt an open data model. I mm -hmm. believe that public records are people's records. Um, I think it should be searchable, easy, and it's there. There's no need for controversy in in public records because of the people's records. You said uh, at the debate that sometimes it's the councilman's job to be frustrated uh, by the current administration. What are the things that have frustrated you about the current administration? Well, we have a natural tension, which is good, between an executive and legislative branch. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it goes beyond just passing laws. 
Um, a lot of times we as council members rely on projects being done in our ward. Mm -hmm. And too frequently, there'll be roadblocks. There'll be like a, a project will be slow. And we as council people tell our residents when to expect progress. Hey, you'll be seeing your streets done on this day. You're gonna mm -hmm. see progress in this, this project happening. So you, you put yourself out relying on certain information. And then when it doesn't happen, it's frustrating. So, you know, a lot of times I have to push through, um, you know, get with our certain departments with, you know, it's capital projects or they say, you know, are those bids out yet? Why are they not out? Is this police camera up yet? How come this police camera is not up? We've talked about this. So I do have those conversations. Those are the frustrations I have as president of Cleveland city council. Of course, there's one, uh, there's one rule that is, uh, or just one thing that I would, I, as mayor, I'm going to already have this internalized is no council person ever wants to find out about something from the media before they learn about it from, you know, inside 601 Lakeside. Like that is a, um, you know, that's, um, and one of those, one of those things that there's no, uh, there's no two ways about that one. There's no way around that. That's like a rule that is often, um, followed, but sometimes it's missed. And when it's missed, that's a big deal. When we hear about something from the media and not directly from the city. A lot of these questions I've been asking you are ones that have come in from our community members over the last week. And I want to welcome any other questions that, that those who are watching or listening right now might have. Um, you can get your question to us by texting it to 330-541-5794 or tweeting it at the city club and we'll work it into um, the second half of the program. This is obviously Kevin Kelly. You can tell by the sign above his shoulder that he's running for mayor. Um, we uh, let's talk about recycling for a second. Uh, fewer than eight thousand. Uh, you're uh, you're uh, you're muted there for a second. Uh, recycling. Fewer than eight thousand people have opted in. Eight thousand households rather have opted in. Um, that's a fraction of a fraction of the households that uh, mm -hmm. the city might hope to serve mm -hmm. through that program. What's going on there? Okay, so. When I'm mayor, the recycling program is going to be robust. It's going to be easy to understand, and it's going to be something where we develop a circular economy. The, the opt-in option is the, is the very first step. Now, on the low numbers, we have to make sure that we do great public education. I'm going to make sure we do great public education because a lot of the problems with the previous recycling programs, we didn't do that. And too many people you know, didn't understand what was recyclable, what wasn't, it led mm -hmm. to contamination, the feed. That's not going to happen. We are going, I am going to, un I am going to roll out a recycling program for those products where there is a market that there's, uh, you know, for, for cardboard, for, um, for aluminum, for some glass, for number two plastics, everybody's going to understand it. And we have to make sure that we're not shipping these goods outside of the city of Cleveland. We need that to produce local jobs. If it, need, if it means working with Cuyahoga County Solid Waste District to put in our own recycling operation, that's what we need to do. But we have to treat this as an economic development project as well as an environmental project. So, you know, the opt-in program right now, it's, um, it's, it's kind of lethargic. It's, it's, it's slow. I don't know how many people actually know about it or know how to go about opting in, but mm -hmm. it's something that's going to change on day one. It's something that I've been committed to. I you know, was involved in the very front end of our recycling program, which started out fantastically. The previous um, recycling program. Yeah. The, the one where the contract was canceled. 
But yeah. you know, when we first started out, it was it, we were making money off of it. We had a tremendous amount of lower workers' comp claims. I absolutely believe in recycling. I always have. Um, I've, every policy vote I've taken has supported that. And I can assure the residents of the city of Cleveland that when I'm mayor, there is going to be a smart, robust program that is going to that is going to a reduce our tipping fees, reduce what we put in landfills, and also create jobs. Um, the contract was canceled by the provider, by the vendor, or by the city? The contract uh, expired on its own terms. Oh, expired. The, yeah, and the way it's so the- uh, that, that, I, I, It was actually my lead into the next, to a next question. Right, right. Uh, the city of Cleveland is in a uh, contract, a very long-term contract with an energy provider, AMP Ohio. Mm -hmm. um, I think you were on council at the time and voted in favor of the AMP Ohio deal. Am I correct on in, you are in that? Correct. You are correct. Um, this was all more than a decade ago. You are correct. Um, and uh, it's not, it's from understanding it's causing uh, ratepayers at CPP at Cleveland Public Power to pay two to three times the market rate on, is the, the, at least that's what's been reported. How do you see that contract? Can you make changes? What kind of changes would you make? Okay, so yes, the you know the AMP contract you were you were polite about it. It was a, it's a disaster for the city of Cleveland. Okay, um, CPP rates are not two to three times higher, but the energy that we're getting out of this contract is more expensive and it uh -huh. is hindering the operation. And it's um, also not clean energy. It is not clean energy. And what I would uh, you know the, the the challenge of being um, an administrative excuse me. Scratch that. That's that's when I went to what's when I'm mayor. The challenge mm -hmm. of being in the legislative position is, you know, we we had to rely on information um, that, you know, there was there was sound, you know, consultants. There was there was multiple, um, you know, looks at this in terms of the energy market was different. Mm -hmm. But I think the you know, as we go forward, is there a is there a is there opportunity to do something different? Yes. I would caution your listeners that you can't just walk away from a contract. I would right. uh, caution you and this is complicated, but we're going to get it's there. 50 year contract. Is that right? Um, I don't know the remaining term, but it's a long contract. And there, but there are, there are options. They're not simple, but it is yeah. something that we, we need to deal with that. And, and then we have to understand the reality of the, of the market right now, that even if we were to do that, Cleveland public power is a small, is a small player and a great big market, especially since first energy merged with Allegheny power. To me, yes, those contracts are problematic. Yes, mm -hmm. there's a path out, but it's it's going to be messy. But I'm going to get mm -hmm. us out. I'm going to. It's going to be messy, but it's going to get better. The real future for me for CPP can't be just providing power. I see I see Cleveland Public Power as being very involved in broadband. I think that if you look at the city of Chattanooga, they mm -hmm. use their electric company to to provide broadband service to their residents. Oh, because you already have the right of way with the and the and the connectivity. You're just having yes. more wires. Yes, we own the mm -hmm. streetlights. We own most of the poles. I feel like we talked about this back in April 2020, didn't we? Yeah, we did. <laughs> no, this is a uh, you know. Yeah. But the, the difference now, Dan, is yeah. that uh, this isn't cheap. This isn't free. Um, but right now, there's dollars. But now there's available. money for it. There's exactly. That's why I think we need to strike now. We need to modernize Cleveland Public Power. What we need to do is we need to make sure that, A, the product is safe. It's got to be safe for the workers. It's got to be safe. It's got to deliver reliable, um, mm -hmm. consistent, transparent power or transparent billing, but power to yeah. people. But again, we have to realize that if we're just think we're just going to hang it because we're all buying off the grid, 
um, and, and compete with First Energy, I don't think that's the path to success. I think we need to get the capital operation in place. We need to make sure it's safe, but then we need to look at different business models. And to me, the fact that we own the poles, we own the vertical assets, there's mm -hmm. opportunity there that we are not capitalizing on. We need to look at what else can we do with you know, lease rights to those poles, with broadband access, and we need to get to a point where we are like, you know, like Chattanooga returns $12 million of its enterprise fund, which is our electric company, to the general fund. Uh, we, well, we as, uh, as somebody who hosted, we hosted the uh, mayor of Chattanooga here. I think you were here for that event, yes, I was. Mayor Andy Burke. And I'm glad to hear that that has, was influential. Yeah, um, I visited it with him. I went to Chattanooga. We, I love it. Yeah. That's, that's outstanding. Yeah. Um, Council President Kelly, I just heard a siren go by uh, your headquarters there, I think, which leads me uh, help, helpfully into the question about law enforcement. Please. Um, and there's a few pieces here. I mean, one is your opposition to issue 24 yes. and the question, uh, what do we do? The first question is that really, I'll, I won't I won't stack a bunch of questions because that's not a good thing. to Let's do. Let's start but, there. Um, but let's start there. Sure. If issue 24 fails, um, issue 24 was it was intended by its advocates to address some longstanding problems with police accountability. Um, what would you propose? What will you do? if issue 24 fails to ensure that the goals of greater police accountability, greater public safety, greater, uh, stronger and more resilient police community relations are met. Issue 24 is going to be before the voters. And what I would say to anybody who's listening or, or, or cares to listen is this. There's a lot of rhetoric. There's a lot of buzzwords. In a lot of ways, there hasn't been great coverage of this mayor's race. There certainly hasn't been a deep dive of the candidates. And candidates need, to, or excuse me, we've kind of left that to the public to do. This is an issue. It's the only policy of substance that my opponent has advocated. And it's a clear difference between the candidates, both in policy and how one makes decisions. And it, it reflects upon the judgment of both candidates. I hear you. The, I hear you, and we talk. You you made those points in the debate, so I want to get you, know, you beyond that for a second. But I want to no, get you beyond that for a second. Okay. The the issue of accountability. This sure. is meant to address issues perceive perception that there isn't enough accountability. That right. police officers are not serving the public, and in fact, may be disdainful of the public that they serve. And um, how would you address these perceptions, or how would you address these central issues? First of all, I would disagree that it's that's it's, it's that strong you know, that they disdain the public. No, that's that's okay. not the case. These are men and women that are working hard for our community, and they are we are asking them to do a very difficult job. So you know, if we, no, if I, we you. I mean, abs yeah. absolutely. But, but let me, let how me do you improve the situation? Back. Sure, we improve the situation by continuing on the path that we are on. The consent decree that was signed. You know, in 2015, if you look at the progress that has happened since the consent decree, if you look at the use of force cases, if you look at the um, the complaints against police officers, if you look at the amount of cases that have been cleared from Office of Professional Standards, if you look at the fact that uh, very, very few dollars have been paid in settlement for incidents occurring after the consent decree. If you look at the training for uh, um, crisis intervention training, de-escalation training, use of body cams, just a shift from a, a warrior model to a guardian model, 
we are on the right path. Are we there? No, but we are on the path to get there. And when my, my opponent says that the consent decree expires in two years, it's just not true. The consent decree is over when the judge determines that we have substantially complied with the terms that are in it. So we are there. Issue 24 is not the answer. Uh, issue 24, I believe, is a, you know, really uses some buzzwords that would make people think it is what it is. And when you talk about accountability, of course, everybody wants accountability. I absolutely believe in accountability. When you talk about reform, absolutely. We need to be on this path. But I do not want those decisions made by an unelected board of bureaucrats who will then enter the political, make discipline decisions uh, political. And Wait, it will hold be, on a second, Council sure. President. The, yes, the, if your mayor and issue 24 yes. passes, yes. you appoint that board. They're not an it, unelected, I mean, they're unelected, oh, no, no, but they're not, right. and they're not, they're only bureaucrats if you appoint bureaucrats. No, they, well, Dan. Am I wrong? Am I misunderstanding well, something? Well, about understand how this works. They are not elected. Let's just agree on that. Well, like most commissions, right? right. Like most they're commissions unelected. in the city. They're unelected. They would, um, they have to have uh, approved by council, but in terms of how do you remove them, that gets a whole lot more difficult. But here's something that um, I but would they like can, to- I mean, there's a process for removal. There's a process, but and it's they, harder but, to but, remove one of these members than it is the chief of police, if I'm mayor. And I would but, say this, but, there's, there's another- but, but, but you would appoint them. So I right. But, so they're only bureaucrats if you appoint bureaucrats, right? No, like I mean, you would, right, I, but, I, I mean, so I'm just, I, Dan, I, I'm just pointing that you, out that you would me, that you would be responsible point, as you're responsible for appointing the, the school board, right? But then there's a then there's a chance, then the issue of removing them. But another thing that you need to be that I would make sure that the listeners are aware of is uh -huh. that this board of unelecteds would have access to millions of dollars that do not require council authority, that do not require approved from the mayor. They can just spend. And that's where corruption happens. And we need to take a really strong look, a hard look. I, I see you not, un, not, not believing I'm just that, thinking. I'm just thinking but, about it. I mean, like, yeah, I, I, but I know that, but don't all commissions at the city of Cleveland, and there are dozens of them, don't they all have a budget? They don't have a spending authority that doesn't require approval by council. They don't have spending authority that doesn't require some approval of the executive branch. No. And we're talking about, if you just take the 1%, of the city's budget. There's 2.18 million. If you take the separate board that gets a minimum budget of a million, then you take 0.5% of the police budget, which would be, you know, a million plus that they get to just give out to community organizations without any oversight. That's problematic to me. Mm -hmm. That is extremely problematic to me. And I would just, because um, I, I agree, many people who signed this had the best of intentions in mind when they did so. But I would just encourage everybody to look at the text of this, look at the the effects of this that we're not thinking about, that that might not be obvious from the from the sound bites. This is a serious issue, mm -hmm. and, and the fact that it whether it's legal or not, I don't think so. I don't think that you can pass a law that overrides a collective bargaining agreement. But you know that this is going to be problematic from the start. Uh well, I, I'll let our listeners know too that we're doing a, a debate on this a week from tomorrow. So you're welcome to tune in for that. It'll be live here at the City Club. You're welcome to buy tickets and join us as well. Um, do you? There's a question uh, directly from uh, from a listener today. Do you believe the prospective Guardian Stadium deal needs to include a community benefits component? And uh, what should Cleveland residents and taxpayers reasonably expect in return from the Guardians? Sure. Um, there's gonna be more than a community benefits component. 
Um, this is going to be um, done by men. All the capital improvements are going to be done under prevailing wage by men and women of the Building Construction Trades Council and by the Black Contractors Association. Um, if we need to memorialize it in some way, I'm happy to, if it's something that comes to a project labor agreement, but I can assure you that Clevelanders are going to benefit from that project. Um, they are going to be the ones that are doing the work. They're going to be the ones that are responsible for the improvements. So that is something that, um, whether it, we call it a community benefits agreement, a project labor agreement, or just a, an absolute demand of the job, that is going to be done by prevailing wage workers Black Contract Association, Cleveland Building Trade uh, Council, absolutely. Um, and the what does the public get in a, in return? Uh, we get a baseball team. Start there. Um, we get millions of dollars in admission tax. We get millions of dollars in hotel bed tax, parking tax, um, all those things that go to our general fund. And this there's a different. You know, we are talking about maintaining this. Your listeners should understand, if they don't already, that in the event that the guardians would leave, the city of Cleveland is responsible for all of the expenses, capital, routine maintenance of maintaining this. And God forbid, if we ever had to take it down, that would be an expense. We own this. So we have an obligation to the public to keep it vital, to keep it as an economic development engine, and to make sure along the way that Clevelanders are benefiting from this. Clevelanders are doing the construction. Clevelanders are doing the improvements. And let's get a, it'd be nice to have a World Series as well. <laughs> Do you think there's a real threat that they would leave? Uh, yes. I don't, you don't have to look hard. Um, there are there are plenty of cities that would like our baseball team. Uh, you know, we, we saw it with the Browns. But if you look around the, the city right now, or excuse me, you look around the country right now, there are cities that would, that desperately want a baseball team. And yes, that threat is real. Um, do I think that the, in, the Guardians are, are shopping us around? No, I think they are coming to this in good faith and with good intentions. But is that something we can take off the table? Absolutely not. Look what happened in Atlanta. Um, you know, you know their, you know their baseball team left the city of Atlanta. They're in Cobb County right now. You know, they they, they went suburban. Um, but there's there are other states that want our team. Um, another question from uh, the community: What do you think about creating an alternative non-police response for people experiencing mental health crises or a lack of shelter? I support that, and I would also make sure that we all go into this with our eyes wide open. Um, this is very difficult. We, I, I live in the second district. I work with the second district. The second district is where this co-responder model, uh, you know, was born and, and came up, and it was successful. But the the window of cases, the, those number of cases that you can rely on, either co-responders or all just social services personnel is very low. Um, many of the cases, whether it's, you know, it can be domestic, it can be, um, you know, neighbor neighbor disputes. Those are things, I'm a social worker, so I know there's a certain level of tolerance of danger. There are things that need a police response. Is there opportunity to have more co-responders to look at possible other cases where we could send them? Yes, but it's not a silver bullet. It's not something we have great mental health services through frontline services, through you know, recovery. We have a whole network of services, but we have to just make sure that we are being smart about this, that we, we, we are 
considering the safety of everybody involved, but make sure that um, we are employing the approach that is most appropriate for the situation. So yes, I'm supportive, but let's not be naive that it's going to be an easy thing to do. Is the co-responder model, I mean, is it, would you advocate taking it citywide? It is citywide. Um, and it started in the second district as a pilot. It is citywide right now. But again, the, the number of cases that they are able to respond to for you know, safety and other reasons isn't a lot. I don't want to um, quote anybody uh, personally, but I talked to the people that are running and they basically said that they're not, um, they're not like overworked where we have to expand the program right now. I just need to take a look at that program and just find out are there other opportunities for this model to work, but it is citywide currently. Um, one of the things that you brought up during the, the debate or, and that has come up a few times is about the, you know, hiring police officers and mm -hmm. ensuring that there's a, a, a strong pipeline of, uh, of talent coming into the police force as, mm -hmm. as we are expected to experience a wave of retirements in the coming years. What's your plan for that? Because you've sure. talked about what a hard job it is, and mm -hmm. it's, it is hard to entice people to take it on. Yes. Two approaches. The first approach is a very local approach. Uh, we have a program at MLK High School that is designed to encourage uh, young people to be interested in, in safety forces. It just hasn't worked. We've only had one graduate that has that you know, joined the Division of Fire. We have to find a way to improve the pipeline locally, right from our schools, right from Cleveland, Ohio. Second approach is we need to look at those folks that have gone off to college, whether through Say Yes or some other, you know, some other thing, but want to come back to Cleveland. Let's ask them if they would consider being part of this. And I also have a plan that if it's not posted on my website, it will be done shortly, but it's an outreach plan to historically um, black colleges and universities where we can do an outreach to them, reach out, make sure that we are, make sure we're attracting the talent that's gonna build a diverse uh, division of police. And we need to, as we do this, we need to understand just how hard the job is. We need to raise the pay of the officers. We need to up the training of the officers. We need to make sure that they feel valued. Morale is a problem right now. We have to make sure we get this done. And again, you know, there are, the real stress of the job right now, to my understanding, is that with all of the openings that we have, the over 150 uniform personnel down in the division of police, that causes stress up and down, you know, whether it's zone cars or specialty units, um, you just name the, the division, they are stressed. Um, they're stressed. And we have to deal with the wellness needs of the officers. But again, because there are, there are over 300 officers that are retirement eligible, if issue 24 were to pass, we would have a very difficult time dealing with this issue. It would be so, it would be very difficult to retain, to recruit, to get people to take this job, to hire a chief if issue 24 were to pass, because it, it, it's been expressed to me by enough officers where I believe it to be real, that they will leave the force immediately and that will cause more stress, that will cause more morale issues, that will cause more operational issues. So again, we have to take an, an, an aggressive position on recruiting and retaining, but again, we can't do it with our hands tied with, with issue 24. The American Rescue Plan Act uh, is bringing uh, half a billion dollars to the city of Cleveland. Mm -hmm. 
um, one of the plans uh, to that came before council yesterday um, is to allot about I think it's twenty four million dollars for equipment for the division of police, uh, new SWAT vehicles, um, riot gear, and so forth. Um, can you talk about that? What are your, what's your thinking there? Yes. So the ARPA dollars are, they're, in, they're intended for COVID related um, relief. Mm -hmm. We cannot for one minute not acknowledge that the spike in violent crime that coincided exactly with the onset of COVID is COVID related. And we need to use these dollars to stop violent crime now. And it's not something, everything else that we talk about during the campaign, every neighborhood investment program, anything else we're doing doesn't matter unless we get this in order. So I think we need to make, we need to take this opportunity to make sure that the division of police has the equipment, the training, the skill, everything they need to succeed. Because again, this is an epidemic that needs to be dealt with. So I'm looking forward to reviewing that legislation more closely when it comes to my committee. But I absolutely believe that right now is the time to, inv to invest in our division of police, in the equipment that they use, in the training, everything that it would take to assist them in fighting this surge in violent crime. The, um, is riot gear part of that? Well, you know, if you look at, it can be anything. Now, the... The surge in violent crime has taken on a lot of different, you know, a lot of different components. The use of guns, the use of um, the proliferation of guns, gunfire, you know, the whether or not it results in a, in a murder, the amount of gunshots, gunfire that has taken place in the city of Cleveland has gone up exponentially. We are in crisis mode right now. Um, do they need protective gear? Yes. Um, you know, have they, you know, they, they need that to do this job. And we don't know what this is going to bring. We don't know what is on the horizon with COVID. We assume, we hope it's getting better, but we don't know what's next. We need to make sure that we are prepared for whatever is next. And again, dealing with crime has to be the main issue that we deal with in every neighborhood in the city of Cleveland. This is, we found this to be the absolute number one issue on people's minds, north, south, east, and west, every community in Cleveland. This is the issue people care most about. Um, uh, another issue that has come up um, regarding the schools, we haven't talked about the schools at Please. all. Um, mm -hmm. Given that the mayor appoints the CMSD school board, but otherwise doesn't have direct control, how do you propose to build on the progress CMSD has made over the past 10 years? And since the board isn't elected, how will you ensure community voice is heard on, the, on schools in Cleveland? Sure. As I'm sure you know by now, I am a CMSD dad. And I saw firsthand what happened when COVID struck and we sent home 38,000 scholars knowing that 18,000 of them uh, did not have broadband access, uh, did not have the tools they needed to succeed. So how are we going to move forward? Um, there's a lot of ways we can move forward, but let's just start with the idea that we have to make sure we stop talking about digital divide amongst our students, amongst our scholars as just something we're comfortable with. Again, we sent home 18,000 scholars knowing that they did not have broadband access. Did we really think it was gonna be okay? Doesn't work that way. We've got to make sure this happens. That's why I'm very pleased with the fact that the city of Cleveland um, you know, allocated $20 million to attack this problem. And I think that's very significant. Another thing we also need to start doing is we've got to start career readiness 
um, back in the fifth, sixth grade. We can't fail kids from K to 12 and think a program's going to fix that. But right now is the absolute ideal time to do it because we have this fantastic opportunity called Say Yes to Education that mm-hmm. provide a bachelor's degree, associate's degree, apprenticeship training, skilled manufacturing training, and tri-state, whatever you need to succeed. But what people might not know as much about Say Yes is it also provides wraparound services um, throughout the academic journey because we know that you you bring kids bring things to school that we haven't seen before. You know, they bring a lot of trauma. We are in a time right now where this opportunity is something where we have to make sure that we have our scholars and our parents believing that they are a part, they have a future of this economy. This economy, our healthcare industry, our manufacturing industry, our financial service industry, we need people, we need scholars as much as scholars need opportunities. This is the perfect time to bring this together. And CMSD is going to be a key component in that. And again, this is something that is much more than political to me. This is personal to me. I've, I've, I've watched when I look at my daughter and her peers on just how they're being affected by this. This has to happen. We have to make sure that our scholars are rising to challenges and give the opportunities to meet those challenges. What about that question of community voice with an unelected school board? Sure. So the um, the best way to get community voice is is through parents. It's through people in the community. It's through developing a robust uh, you know, PTA system and, and parent involvement. Um, my observation is that some schools, some buildings have excellent parent engagement and some don't. And we need to get to a consistent level where every single school is engaging parents, is engaging the community and understanding what that parent, what the community needs for that school to succeed, that building. Because again, a building can't succeed in isolation. It's got to be part of the community. And you know that will be a, a priority to make sure that that type of, of engagement is encouraged. Council President Kevin J. Kelly is running for mayor. He's seeking your vote. Council President, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, what else? What's next on your uh, on your calendar? Oh, it, it, it's, it's a mess. Yet? I won't even bore you with it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, listen, I know you've got it. There's been a ton of forums. Uh, there's a, a ton of questions, and 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 I know that it's a it, that running uh, in a campaign like this is just a boatload of work. We appreciate you making so much time for us this week, both at the debate and today. Um, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. Or more. Okay. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Good luck right, to you. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Bye. And thank you for joining us for our conversation with Cleveland mayoral candidate, Kevin Kelly. Be sure to join us uh, next week here at the City Club, Friday, October 22nd, for a debate on Issue 24, which has come up a lot lately. We're going to have uh, folks on both sides, so please join us. You can, you can tune in right here at cityclub.org, on the radio, on WCPN, or you can buy a ticket. Join us in person. We're having a flash sale right now. Tickets are, um, are at member prices for everybody on this. So check it out, cityclub.org. That brings us to the end of our forum. Please remember to vote on Tuesday, November 2nd. Big thanks to our community partners from the Western Reserve chapter of the Lynx Incorporated. We appreciate your support and letting folks know and, and encouraging folks to participate in our forum today. And with that, I'll say this, our forum is adjourned. Thanks so much for being with us.